Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rosgem, and I'll be your host. Hello, and welcome back to Emerge Evolve Lead. My guest this week is Lindsay Ellison. Lindsay is a relationship coach who helps people discover their breakthrough in their breakup. Like breakups really can be a catalyst for self-discovery and with insightful reflection, you can identify your own destructive relationship patterns. I'm really glad to have you on the podcast today. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to talk about this because there's so many of us in recovery that find ourselves in the wrong relationship after a few years. Now, mm. I happen to find my partner in the rooms of AA. So we are both on the recovery path. And that's just the best combination ever because we know not to like take each other's inventory. And we, yes. you know, we are both very independent people and we support each other in our growth, but we don't try to get fixing from the other person or nor do we try to fix the other person but enough about me let's start with you please first tell our audience a little bit about like where you live what you do for a living and some of those things and then we'll get into your story and what happened and why you know what you know Mm -hmm. well I've been uh, a relationship coach for about 10 years now Um, I used to you know I came into this work really kind of by accident. I was always in the advertising communications field, always worked at an ad agency of some sort. And um, I was you know, vice president of this company. And, and then I got a divorce and I was divorcing a narcissist. Didn't even really know what that was. I mm-hmm. didn't know what, you know, the whole process was really difficult. My kids were really little. They were um, four and seven at the time. So it was a very, very difficult thing to navigate. And I had been in therapy over and over and over again, and no one had ever, you know, had ever mentioned, um, in all of the therapists that my husband was really a covert master manipulating narcissist. So I got out of that relationship really kind of in this big fog and, Uh. um, and it was a very difficult thing to navigate. So, I also have a journalism background. So I just started to write about it and I started to research narcissism and, and I had an article that went viral on Huffington post way back when, and that's where my writing just kind of got me into this by accident and people were asking for help. And so I just switched careers and that was 10 years ago. Super. And you have a book actually, that's called, tell me. Magic words, how to get what you want from a narcissist. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, let's start there. (laughs) I want to, I want to know, like, first of all, what's the real definition of a narcissist? How do you know, can can narcissists self-identify? Have you found that they know when they are, or they're just not even aware? This is a disorder in the personality. Tell me more. So there's two different kinds. There's a covert narcissist and an overt narcissist. It's typically the overt narcissist who, 
are almost proud of their narcissism. Mm. Um, Donald Trump is a pretty good overt narcissist. I, I'm not trying to be political, but I'm just saying just he's admitted it. I mean, you know, and <laughs> and and they like their flashy stuff and their cars and their, you know, and and they will overtly manipulate you and admit that they are. I mean, it's yeah. just unbelievable. Oh, Where, yeah. Let me I'm just going to change to be a Republican since Democrats don't really like me or whatever. So, and I know because I can I can work them. It's interesting. So he made narcissism popular somehow. Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, um, he kind of put narcissism on the big screen for sure. Um, and so someone like him, um, they're, they're easier to spot, let's mm. just say. Uh, and, and, and their behavior is so jaw dropping because you can't believe everyone's witnessing that. Right. So it's overt where a covert narcissist is someone who they're a little bit trickier to deal with and find and spot because they really come off as really just great people, very, in a very likable, um, and then they have really what's going on behind the scenes is that they have a lot of wounds from childhood and they learned, I, I really believe that narcissism, just like codependency, is a, an adapted personality that we learn and pick up in childhood in order to adapt in our family system. So okay. a, that a, makes sense. A, co a codependent narcissist have very, very similar childhoods in terms of the wounds and the family system and mom or dad is a codependent or a narcissist. And so what a narcissist really does is they have this false sense of self. They, they come up with this um, adapted grandeur about themselves because they were rewarded in their childhood to be this other person that they're not. Mm. And then they found success or likability or just they, they got what's called supply. You know, that's narcissistic supply. I, I say that's kind of like gasoline to the ego. And once they really take off with that, it becomes a disorder because they believe that they are often a victim of everything, right? So they never take accountability. Um, narcissists don't have a sense of boundaries. They don't, um, they don't really respect anyone's time or, or the other people's swim lanes. And so it's all can, about them. Become, it's all about them and they can become very, very manipulative. And I can go on and on about that, but I want to give you a short answer for that one. Well, the, the alcoholic, I mean, we have such an ego that we, and everybody does, but um, so there's probably some people that have learned because we are survivors. We yeah. learn to get past trauma in childhood. Uh, a lot of us were raised by either, you know, narcissistic or, or alcoholic parents or yeah. some, some dysfunction in the family. And we play different roles. There's a whole dysfunctional family role model, you know, absolutely. Chart. And, um, and as we get sober, when we finally hit our bottom, it's so destructive. We, we just, we try to destroy ourselves unconsciously <laughs> and then we, we rise up from the ashes and our personality changes. Like there is, there is so much that changes and we learn, um, not just to be looking at ourselves all the time, although personal growth is one of our best, you know, features because we're self-reflective. We learn to admit to our character defects. Yes. We have a spiritual program and it's based on connection and helping other people. Um, and so 
I guess I, you know, you could still for sometimes years manipulate other people and try to play the same games, you know, hoping for different results. And they say, it's like, if you don't get any help, but you just become sober, you're just basically a dry drunk. Yeah. Exactly. You know, some people don't have quote recovery, right. And yep. so they continue to play the same games. So I'm wondering if there is sort of um, a point where, you know, you get a, a narcissist into adulthood and they, and they get fired from too many jobs because they, people do see what it is that's happening here. Do they ever, can they get help or is it really an, a personality dysfunction? I think the disorder so we can, narcissism is, is, a, is a spectrum. It's a, it's a spectrum disorder. Okay. It's like on a spectrum, right? So anyone who, let's just say in the um, addiction <clears throat> world, you are truly narcissistic if you're not getting help. If you're blaming the world on your problems, you're not taking accountability, right? right. And you're the victim. Um, so you use whatever substance to escape. Feed the narcissism in okay. many ways, because it's like, well, I don't, you know, I, uh, I'm having a really bad day so I can do this, or I can treat my wife this way, or I can treat my husband this way, or I can treat my coworkers this way. So those who don't really get the recovery aspect are really not coming out of their narcissism. They're not taking accountability. And so, you know, as you know, in the 12 step program, it's, it's about, connecting with your higher power. Well, narcissists often think they are the higher power oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they use their drug of choice as a higher power. They and usually so between... don't stay sober if they think if they don't have that. But exactly. Yeah. And so the whole rock bottom notion is coming to terms with this isn't working and I'm going to take accountability and stop blaming everyone else and start owning my own stuff. And so I, I really do believe that the root cause of most addiction is less about narcissism and more about codependency. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we all develop these coping tools uh, and alcohol, whatever substance abuse that we have can often, it, it's really more the codependency that got us there and less about the narcissism. Okay. All right. So let's get into your story a little bit. What happened with you? How did you figure out that you were in a, you know, a, quite a dysfunctional relationship and how did you get yourself some help and get out of it and that sort of thing? So I have a really interesting story being that I'm a relationship coach. I, um, I got out of this marriage, the first one, <clears throat> they've married twice now. And, um, I got out of the first relationship and, I definitely knew I was a codependent, but I thought back then, um, you can kind of graduate from it, you know, it's kind of like you're no longer an alcoholic. Right. And so I thought I just was no longer a codependent because I thought I found the love of my life, which is my second husband. Uh, we were together that my second husband and I, it was really kind of in many ways, a, a, a much better, healthier relationship. The problem was, is that he was a pretty bad drinker. Um, and he, he was a strange kind of alcoholic in that he didn't need to get up every day and drink or anything, but he had that, I called it the incredible Hulk syndrome where a couple drinks and his whole personality was changing. And, um, and then he just had stuff going on in his life and his career. And just, he was having his, his own journey that he was going on. And then my codependency relapsed and I didn't even know that that was a thing. 
right? Oh, I didn't yeah. know dependency was a thing that, you know, we see it now as, as an addiction, right? We treat it as an addiction. Um, so a few years ago, the world was kind of falling apart. COVID was just beginning. He had lost his job because of COVID. Uh, the drinking was getting bad. And I felt that I had to fix everything around me. You know, my kids were not in school and stuff going on with their dad. And I mean, it was just the whole world was buckling. And I never once asked for help. And I had a lot of deep shame that my world was falling apart. Meanwhile, I'm coaching everyone every day. And I have this very successful book. And, um, and so I was living like in the shadows and it ended up just breaking me. And so I had a major, major, you know, um, kind of my own weird codependent rock bottom. I just started to have a lot of trauma responses. So my deep traumas, um, my mother was killed in a car accident when I was six years old oh, and my. I, you know, was with her and I, you know, what, you know, I was, oh, geez. and I almost, so the, my husband, um, he went to rehab during this time and that just triggered me to feeling very abandoned and all, that very, trauma, right? all of that trauma. So while he was in rehab, he came back and then I went away. And so I so tell me, how old were your kids at this time but that he went to treatment? Um, well, this is my second husband. So this yep. was just a few years ago. So they are now they Oh, gosh, I'd say they were like 13 and 16. OK, so they're somewhat independent, but still. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Need their parents or. Yeah. Know, even though it wasn't. Yeah. Keep going. So I, um, I ended up getting treated at, I don't know if you've heard the world renowned, the meadows, um, it's out in Arizona Mm -hmm. and I, um, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do is, is, I mean, it wasn't the hardest thing, but it was one of the hardest things, um, surrender. It's surrender. It's a very difficult first step. Exactly. And I learned, um, you know, and I actually thought I was bipolar because, because of the, um, just this deep sense of, of sadness. And, and I, I just couldn't stop crying. I couldn't because of my relationship, my marriage was kind of just crumbling. Um, but it was your six-year-old. It was exactly, exactly. And, I recognize just being in treatment. So I, you know, again, I wasn't there for alcoholism or any substance abuse. What I really thought I was bipolar. And so they're like, honey, you're not bipolar. You're just having a codependent relapse. And oh it was, it was a lot of trauma that I thought I had dealt with, but what I really, you know, I dealt with my mother's death. What I didn't know that was lingering was more the relationship I had with my father. And after my mother died, my dad lost the love of his life. And then, and he just, you know, I always say kind of metaphorically, he died with her. Um, And he was a very um, kind of a disengaged, almost neglectful parent. And then he married um, when I was 10 remarried, and then she came into the family system and she had a lot of issues. And, and so I had a lot of pain and a lot of lots of stuff happened between like eight and 10 years old for me. And I realized um, while I was in um, at the Meadows, by the way, it was like that the first few days was, I was like, what am I doing here? You know, I, I, I see denial, 
but yeah. And then, and then of course you kind of one up everyone, right? You're thinking like, oh, well, I don't have a drug problem and I don't have like, I'm not getting detoxing off of heroin or alcohol or anything like that. But man, it, it was, I mean, sobering literally, right? It was right. just to Ouch. see this amazing group of people. I mean, from all walks of life in treatment with us and we all had trauma. We all yeah. had it. And so that's what I loved about the Meadows is that it was all about um, working on your trauma and less about the addiction because the addiction is really a symptom of the larger problem. Oh, indeed. Right? Oh yeah. And in fact, that's what everybody thinks. Oh, it's a, it's a moral issue. That's what the stigma is all about. Right. We uh-huh. think it's a moral issue and we, but it's not, it's just a symptom. We're using it to escape our trauma, our pain, yeah. our feeling of those feelings, or to just cope because we don't have the skills to cope. So we have to figure out why we drank. And that's what, uh, you know, uh, such a good reason yeah. to go to treatment. And it doesn't matter what your addiction was for you. It's, you know, it was, your addiction was a little different. It was, what it, what do you call it? Addicted well, to love? <laughs> it was love addiction. Okay. It was love addiction. And I never heard, I mean, I had been, again, I've been a coach, so I've gone to school and I've studied all this stuff and I've read a gazillion books, but this was something that I had, this was a new term for me, love addiction. Huh. And, um, and once I, um, you know, at the Meadows, you're not supposed to, you know, there is no, you're not allowed to read any other books other than the ones they give you no phones, no TV, nothing, no access really to the outside world other than, you know, a phone call here or there on a landline. Family. Yeah. Um, but I read this book called facing love addiction by Pia Melody. And she is the founder, one of the kind of founders of the meadows. Um, and so she's written a lot of books. She and faith of addiction. Now I knew I could, I've, you know, I wrote my book before I went through all of this. So I definitely knew what codependency was, but two things I didn't, I didn't know that codependency was really an addiction because, um, you know, when I was going through 12 steps, uh, what we do, uh, in slaw, which is, um, uh, sex and love addiction anonymous, right. We replace the word drinking in the big book with thinking. So we have a thinking problem and we have distorted thoughts. And so most codependents have thinking, distorted thinking, because we had to have it. We had to have distorted thoughts because of the trauma that was going on with us when we were little. It's a survival skill. Yeah. The survival skill. So then we become what is in the Pia's word is an adapted adult we learn these adapted tools in childhood, but we don't grow out of them. And so we're still using these adapted adaptations to survive and just deal with our adult life now. And one of them was love for me. So love was my great. Now, again, I never saw myself as a love addict, right? But what love is, and I'm kind of just kind of say the, the love addict is the greatest fear is that of abandonment with an underlying fear of intimacy. And so intimacy in, in our speak is not sex intimacy. It's, it's uh, the word into me, you see, it's about having connection with someone. So my biggest fear was abandonment. So a lot of love addicts, which are typically codependent, we will really glom onto a relationship and we ignore all of the red flags Uh, and we are so afraid of them leaving us. And just like what happened when my husband went to treatment, 
um, I felt so abandoned. I mean, I literally went into what's called relational death. So when the relationship is about to end or it's not working out, you lose all sight of self-regulation because he was my regulator. He was my higher power. He was my higher power. So love addicts, we use our relationship as our higher power and we lose sight of ourselves. And so typically when we are in a, when we are love addicts, so we almost meet, like a loss of identity. Yeah. Oh, okay. absolutely. Um, they are our, our identity. Gotcha. And so when the relationship ends, um, we go into withdrawal <laughs> and we have, we, there's nothing in moderation. So just like and, and the, the one thing, the difference between a love addict and any other kind of addict and any other kind of addiction, we can abstain from it. We can abstain from alcohol. We can abstain from drugs, right? But we can't abstain from love. It's no. a basic human need. Yes, it is. So it's one of the most difficult um, addictions to treat and recover from because love addicts don't understand moderation. So we typically get so into these relationships, we don't have, um, we lose, we lose our boundaries. We don't have swim lanes. We don't have it's we're all in. And so when our partners are, are going out of the relationship, we freak out. So can I ask you a question? So this is, is it always just with partners? I'm, Cause I've seen some parents who put so much love and are addicted to their kids that when the kids end up growing up and leaving, like they just, they need to have that relationship so bad that they'll, you know, start adopting, adopting or foster kids. You just have more and more and more kids <laughs> or something along those lines, or they fall into a deep depression because they don't know who they are. They don't have this identif- identity or when they lose a child, that's even, that's yeah. like worse. Okay. Does it apply to, well, you can definitely be, you can, well, and it also can apply to just friendships, right? You can be kind of, you know, that just think of a A needy friend, that needy friend who, um, she's kind of obsessed with you. And, you know, you, and, and when you first meet, it's like such this amazing connection and you guys are finishing each other's sentences and all of this stuff. But then, when you come out of the relationship or one of you needs space, there's the sense of withdrawal. So yes, it can definitely happen um, in, in other aspects of your life, but typically it shows up more in a, in a romantic partnership. Okay. And so uh, the love addict is often meets the love avoidant. So there's this, and I'll talk about what that is in a second, but uh, for me, my husband was a, classic love avoidant. And I never even heard of that word. I learned all of that. And so what he would do is, uh, so a love avoidant is the greatest fear is that of intimacy with an underlying fear of abandonment. So the love addict (sighs) is the greatest fear is that of abandonment with an underlying fear of intimacy. So we are afraid of abandonment. They are afraid of intimacy they have the underlying fear of abandonment when we have the underlying fear of intimacy. So it's just boom, it sits right on top of each other. Yuck. And so then what happens is we have this love avoidant, love addiction cycle, and we coin it as Lala, love avoidant, LA to love. So we say Lala because it makes us crazy. 
Lala. Oh it, yeah. it, these are, these types of relationships are really intense. It's those relationships when it's good, it's good, but man, when it's bad, it's bad. Okay. It's, it's, it's F you, then I love you. Right. It's, it's, it's this, just this push pull. And there's, a, it's a lot of intensity and a lot of people, think which is bipolar. This, and that's why I thought I was bipolar. Right. This is, do you see all that? This is Definitely. why I, 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 you know, when, um, talk about a roller coaster, what, ride. what's what, what's one of the steps I don't have 12 steps in front of me. I have yet to memorize it, but it's, it's, it's when you realize you're insane, something like that, or this yeah, is the, the definition of step, insanity. We, you know, yeah. We turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood it, but we, we turn our will over so that we can get our sanity back. I, I don't, I can't yeah, right so now that I, exactly. step two, <laughs> I can't, I don't have it yeah, off step the top two. of my head. <laughs> and that's when I realized that I, not only my husband, but every relationship I had ever had starting from 12, 13, whatever I started dating boys, 14 mm. was that love it. And like that love addict is like when they're not calling you, when they're blowing you off or you're not getting them when you need them, then you could become very controlling. And so we typically, the love addict is we will just need, 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 and want to control the relationship. And just as we're doing that, the love, the love avoidance starts to pull away. Mm. So the love avoidant will enter a relationship out of kind of duty, not love. They feel as though they need to take care of said person. Oh. And a love avoidant comes from more of an enmeshed family system right? So the kids of that parent that you were just talking about when the mom is like, Oh, I need you to, you know, where they're just, it's a very enmeshed family where they don't have a lot of boundaries. Uh, it's often the kid who had to take care of a mom or dad too young. Oh, right. Yeah. And somebody so who might've had mental illness, a parent who had depression or they had to bring them. I remember even one time when I was 10, my mom, she had a back injury. And for some reason I have an older sister and four brothers and none of the boys had to do it. So it was me and my sister who had to remove, get the bedpan underneath her and, and mm. wipe her and remove the bedpan. And I just remember that all before that time, I thought, oh, I want to be a nurse, just like my mom. And it's after that time, I was like, I never want to take care of somebody's body like this again, because <laughs> right. it was too hard. But anyways, it, but it didn't, it didn't scar me. Let's put it that and way. And it doesn't <laughs> have to be, it doesn't actually have to be physical caretaking. It's more, it's actually a little bit more um, it's emotional. emotional incest where let's say a little boy, his mom has gotten divorced or got the crap beat out of her by by dad and he becomes the the the, the pseudo spouse her um, protector and her it's this enmeshment and so or something yeah it's too much for a little kid to handle and right. so when they get into a most a, a romantic relationship intimacy for them is a burden it's just like it's it's and so they start to just kind of they'll, they'll find intensity, quote unquote, outside the relationship. And it does not need to be an affair, although it can happen. Uh, but for me, it was my husband's job. Right. He just was so into work and then wouldn't pay attention to me. And then I would get this fear of abandonment. Right. So he's got the fear of intimacy. I mean, we, we were like the quintessential Lala couple mm. and. So interesting enough, when I got back home, because we were talking about this before we hit the record button about what happens when we are in recovery. 
So I came back home, you know, the right before I left, he'd gone away for a month. I was away for six, right? So now we're both sober. And how long were you gone for? Six weeks? Six weeks. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. You gave that to yourself. What a gift. Oh my gosh. It was the greatest, most amazing thing I had ever done. That's Um, a transformation right there, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm a completely different person. And so that's what happened. I came home and, um, but here's the thing. He was sober, right. From alcohol, but he had not worked on all the other stuff. Right. There's steps to recovery, the past and all that. He, he didn't work. He, he didn't, he thought it was stupid. He didn't believe in, and you know, he didn't have a sponsor or anything like that. So, um, so what happened was I came home now I'm emotionally sober. So love addicts, we call it emotional sobriety and same with codependency, right? When we become emotionally uh, sober and I recognize I was like, I would say to him, you are like a bottle of alcohol to an alcoholic who just got out of recovery or out of, out of rehab he was just triggering me and I was feeling so good. And then right, just within just a couple days, I, I, again, the same issue, like not being intimate. And I'm, again, I'm not being sex. It's just having connection. And we didn't have that. And I now saw it really, really well. Mm. And it, we were not able to um, play the same game. Yeah. We couldn't do it. So the marriage ended. Okay. Um, and it had to, and, and I don't, um, we have a, actually a pretty, darn good relationship for how, you know, but it was just like, we, we were just, you're going to be better friends. Yeah. You were partners in love. We were drunk together. So I call it drunk love. And, and it's like, we were just not good. It's like, we were just not good together. Mm-hmm. And, um, he triggered everything about me that I'd been working on. And apparently I was doing the same thing to him. And, um, and so when I, when, when he moved out, I completely changed my practice. I changed all my, my entire coaching. And that's why it was through this particular breakup that I learned about emotional sobriety and love addiction sobriety and, and do, and I had a sponsor. So I did the whole program. Like I, I worked this the whole so good to think about how much more effective you're going to be because of all the pain that you went through. Yes. And when we're going through it, it feels like a fog. It feels like the hardest thing and all that stuff. And like, how could this have happened? And there's shame and guilt. And then there's suddenly like, oh no, all of this can benefit my clients. All of this yes. can benefit my children and my relationship and my next relationship and for the rest of my life. Yeah. It is it, it's that like, that is the beauty of the, you know, that how we can say we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Right. Because everything that we've learned can make us better people and better to help others. Mm-hmm. And wow. it's interesting because when he moved out, it was so freaking hard. I can't even tell you because I still loved him. I, I, I mean, I, you know, to break up with someone and you love them, but I knew because again, I was going through the program and I knew I loved him the, the way I loved alcohol. You know, oh. it was, he wasn't good for me yeah. and you start to negotiate and you start to think about all these things. Well, was it really that bad? It's kind of like, can I just have one drink? Yeah. You know? yep. Um, and so going through that process, I dove deep into my higher power and I actually ended up creating a new book out of it by oh. mistake. 
um, which is blessings of a breakup. Okay. I was looking for a, um, I wanted like higher power spiritual stuff just to talk to me about this pain of breaking up and I couldn't find one. So then uh, there's nothing on, on Amazon. And so I ended up just writing to myself. I literally was just trying to channel my higher power and I wrote messages to myself every day. Awesome. And, um, and now it's a free opt-in on my website. So you can just get on my website and you'll get it for free. Awesome. And that's so, the way oh, I give back. <laughs> this is very good. And you can find that at lindsayellison.com. Is that right? Yes. Okay, yep. Right good. on my, it's just opt in right there and you'll get it. Good. Wow. So this is, this has just been a fantastic conversation. I'm so delighted to have had you on today. Um, if so, if you were going to give, um, you know, one more last biggest piece of advice that you have for somebody who's in a relationship and intuitively knows that it's time to get out. What, what do you, what do you suggest? Yeah. Well, gosh, lots of things. Um, make a list. I mean, if you're going to do one thing, make a list as to all what's all, what's the good and what's the bad and then share it with someone. It's, 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 it's really like getting sober. Okay. So, and, and I will say that I've seen this a lot that those who give up one addiction go to a secondary addiction. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, so we do. If you have been sober, we can typically get addicted to work, exercise, yep. um, love, our relationships, and shopping. So really shopping, and we really have to check in because the addict brain. Um, you know, and again, when I was in at the Meadows, and we had workshops. I mean, I'm dealing with like the coolest top most addiction specialists ever. And I remember seeing uh, the MRI of, of a brain of an, an addictive brain. And we have serotonin issues, right? We, oh. we are not connecting. That's right. So we will always look for things to, 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 you know, to give us Get that the hit fix. of dopamine and the serotonin. Right. Yes. Yeah. So if, if there's a lot of bad on that list and there's going to be good, right? But if there's a lot of bad, you got to check in and say, is this healthy for me? And if this isn't healthy and I'm, I'm, and I'm having a hard time breaking up, knowing that this isn't healthy for me, you know, start talking to go, go to a CODA meeting, go to a slaw meeting, call me, like, you know, have a meeting with me because that's actually what my, I have a program on about how to break up with someone. That's that's the, 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 the work that I do. Yeah. I mean, I've been in a relationship now for gosh, just in a couple of days before this recording, my husband and I are celebrating 34 years of marriage and it's been really awesome, but we've had, you know, you know, ups and downs like every couple, but there's been this program all along the way about the boundaries of what's his stuff and what's mine. And even like, for example, when I'm triggered, knowing that it's still my stuff, even though he's the triggerer, he's not intending to, but he can be there to support me on what, you know, what I'm working through and that not do such and such a behavior or, you know, whatever. But anyways, um, the long and the short of it is Paul and I used to always say when we're mentoring others, coaching others, that if the relationship is doing more to you than for you, then you need to get out of it. 
And it's harder to do that until you write the list. When you see the list, then your head can get in alignment with your heart because otherwise your head is thinking, well, it's going to be too much pain. And so we put up with short-term, you know, or long-term discomfort over short-term pain. And that is not okay. It's not a good way to live. It's not a good way to show your kids of what a good, you know, good relationship should be. So work on your relationship with yourself and you will attract a better level of relationship in love. 100% amen. That was perfectly said. And I, I really believe that, you know, now I'm, I'm in a wonderful, wonderful partnership my, myself now, and it is the healthiest relationship I've ever had. I don't think I would have this relationship had I not done that work. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's, here's, here's also a telltale sign to know if you've got that codependent relationship is when your partner is having a really bad day, let's say, having a really bad day. And in my situation, my, my, my existing partner has kind of a, a, a really bad ex-wife. She's drink, a big drinker. She, she needs to go to recovery. That's very triggering for me. Just mm. that. Cause it reminds me of what I've gone through. Mm -hmm. And so I've said to him, okay, when, when she's going through those meltdowns, I have to have boundaries about what he can share with me. Mm. Right. Good. Because that's, that's, it's very triggering for me. I would have never done that before three years ago. I would have been like, well, I can fix her and you <laughs> and the two of you together to have the best relationship. And oh, here, give me your daughter's number and I'm going to fix her too. Now, I, I, that's what I'm saying. It's when you are, when your partner is having a really, really bad day, um, whether it's through work or their ex-partner or whatever, it is not our job to fix them, but right. we also, we don't have to have a bad day because they're having a bad day. Right. Right. That's always the telltale sign that, you know, you're getting better. Yeah. And there's a couple of things like that reminds me of Paul used to always say he was working with drug addicts and alcoholics every day. And sometimes he would come home and he'd be like wicked grumpy, or I would have a bad day at work. Same thing. I'd come home like, rah, 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 rah. Mm -hmm. and we would just tell each other so that we don't feed off of that energy. Okay, I'm having a bad day. So if I'm a little pissy, don't, you know, I'm, I apologize, whatever. But also he would say, well, you know what, Maureen, if you walk around and shit all day, you're bound to get some on you. And you, there's ways to shake that off and bring your best self home to your wife and your kids or your husband and Absolutely. your kids or whatever. And there, and that is all about self-care. If you're an introvert, then you need to come home and say, okay, everybody don't talk to me for a half an hour. I'm going to be in my room, get my attitude adjustment <laughs> or, or something like that. Or if you're an extrovert, you know what? I need to sing and dance in my room alone for a few minutes because I need to get this out. <laughs> but whatever it is that you do, open communication and setting those boundaries with your partner. Super awesome advice. Thank you. Yeah. I, 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 I wanted to share one really quick thing because you talked about self-care. So when I was at the Meadows and we're in group, we're in group therapy twice, twice a day and everyone's telling their, their really their story. Right. And we had this rule in our group that we were not allowed to give our them tissues, right. Oh. They're crying. 
and and you will see this there's like all these 10 codependents in one room and we oh. want to take care of this person <laughs> yes we do and so we, we're all like just trying to not have the tissue box and because they have to get it themselves and so that was something so we call that caretaking up oh, your caretaking because really our job in that group room is not to take care of the, our peer but it's to take care of ourselves and we had to take care of ourselves while they're falling apart. We had to learn not to fall apart. So I just thought it was a wonderful kind of micro example to a, a macro, more of a macro, like larger thing of just when someone's having a bad day, it does not mean you have to go over and take care of them. You have to take care of yourself first. Yeah, I love it. And if everybody could see me my, the whole time, Lindsay's talking, my head's going up and down. Yep. 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 I totally get it. And everybody listening could totally get it too. Uh, I remember one time being in a group therapy session and I was bawling, grieving something, really crying. And this woman came over and she put her arm around me and I said, no, don't, you know, don't touch me because it stops my process. So she yeah. goes back and she sits down and I start crying again. And I'm really deep into sharing about this issue. And she freaking gets up and comes back over. And I, I was, it just enraged me. Like, get out of my face. You know, like I yeah. was, and, and I didn't want to turn my sadness into anger, but that's, you know, that's what happened. And it completely shut me down. And you can tell here it is like 40 years later, I still have a resentment. <laughs> well, and whoever was running that group should have not allowed that. Right. Well, it but wasn't. Yeah. It was like little breakout groups. And so there wasn't a facilitator in our little there group of five or whatever it was. But anyways, it was a, it was a good example though, because now I can always call on that or draw on that. And I don't have to caretake others. I just need to hold space for them. And it's as a coach, that's like a number one thing. I don't have to fix Absolutely. anybody. I just have to yeah. hold space. So Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm so glad to have you back here. And I bet you I'm going to have you back again. Thank you. I would love to. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks, everyone. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters. <laughs>